you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the 24th chapter of the book of Acts as we continue our study through this amazing look at the Acts of the Apostles in the first century as God gets the gospel to the nations and to us. In this closing section of Acts that we've been in for a few weeks that began when Jesus entered back into Jerusalem after he finished all of his missionary journeys back in chapter 21, and, and we'll conclude when, Jesus, when, when Paul gets back to Rome in Acts chapter 28. In this final section of the book, Paul makes five defense speeches. Five speeches defending his faith and defending the gospel. We've seen two of them already. One of them before a violent mob in Jerusalem and one before the religious council called the Sanhedrin there in the temple in Jerusalem. But now he's in Caesarea. He's left Jerusalem. He's been escorted out of Jerusalem, really saved by being in custody, saved from the the mob that had conspired to kill him. And he's been taken to Caesarea, which is the capital, the Roman capital of this Roman province. And now in this third defense speech, he gives this speech before the governor of this province, a man named Felix. This defense speech that we'll look at today, more than any of the others, really takes on the appearance of a courtroom drama, complete with a grandstanding prosecuting attorney, a truckload of falsified evidence and accusations, the accused, the, the one who's been accused of these things, passionately pleading his innocence, and even a judge presiding over the case. But as this drama unfolds for us on the pages of Scripture, we will learn that, like Paul, we too will face opposition in one manner or another because of our gospel witness. And when we face that opposition from a world that is growing in its hostility to the gospel, we must press on in our gospel witness, both publicly and privately. And so let's read Acts chapter 24 to see how Paul does this. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, 
Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it's been this morning to worship in your presence with your people. And we return thanks to you for that. We ask, Father, that you would keep us in that spirit of worship as we turn now to your word, expectantly asking, Father, that you would do a work in our hearts, Father, that you would encourage those who need to be encouraged, challenge those who need to be challenged, and Father, those that are here that have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, we pray that you would arrest their thoughts and minds on the truth of the gospel and that you would grant them faith and repentance in, in your son Christ so that you might redeem for yourself new worshipers that you deserve. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are three sections to chapter 24 that I want us to cover one by one. First, in the first nine verses, Paul is accused by the Jews who come from Jerusalem. They bring their case against him, and he is opposed for his gospel message. And as we look at that, we're going to consider how we too can and will be opposed if we are faithful in our gospel witness. 
But then in verses 10 through 21, Paul makes his third defense speech. And we're going to look here at his public testimony. This, this defense speech is public. It's a public gospel witness. And as we look at that, we're going to look for ways in which we can be a faithful public gospel witness in our lives as well. And then in verses 22 through the end of the chapter, Paul begins to interact with Felix on a more personal level, one-on-one. And here we will look at Paul's private testimony, his private gospel witness, and consider ways in which we too need to grow in our private witness as we seek to share the gospel with our friends, neighbors, and co-workers. So let's look at that first section, the first nine verses, as Paul endures opposition because of the gospel. So we're introduced to this guy named Tertullus, and he plays the part of the prosecuting attorney in this courtroom drama. He is a professional orator. He's a lawyer. He's the hired gun that the Jews from Jerusalem have brought with them to bring their case against Paul. And I don't know about you, but I just felt really icky as I was reading his address to Felix. His words drip with empty flattery, do they not? He he says that it's, it's empty. He says, through you we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation... And in every way and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. When in reality, Felix was a horrible governor. And Tertullus knew this full well. It was under Felix's reign that the Jews were treated so badly that the zealots among the Jews became much more pronounced and much more powerful to the point where a few years after he leaves office, they, rev- they seek to revolt against Rome. And, and the zealots grow under the reign of Felix because of his strong-arm tactics with the, Ju- with the Jews. He treats them horribly. And so rest assured that Tertullus doesn't mean a word of this. It's just empty flattery. He's trying to butter up Felix to be sympathetic. sympathetic. To his case. Now, the Bible warns us against empty flattery. The writer of Proverbs warns us about the smooth tongue and flattery of the adulteress who seeks to catch one in her trap. Paul and Peter, in their letters, warn about the smooth talk and flattery of the false teacher whose motive is greed and simply wants you to cough up your money in order to pad his bank account. Flattery always has an ulterior motive. It's, it's deception. It's, it's dishonesty. The thinking is, if I can just add enough sugar to what I'm saying, it will, maybe they'll be able to swallow the bitterness of what I'm saying. And the bitter taste that Tertullus is speaking here are these false charges that he brings up against Paul. And in this passage, we see four charges four false charges that that he brings up against Paul first he says that Paul is a plague literally he's a he's a, a a pest an annoying pest that 
is infecting the people with harmful and dangerous ideas and thoughts. And this is intended to get the attention of Felix because he's in charge of this region. And if someone is walking around infecting the people with dangerous thoughts and ideas, well, then he wants to know about it because he might need to do something about it. Secondly, he says that Paul was stirring up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Now, notwithstanding his hyperbolic exaggeration there, it wasn't Paul who was stirring up the riots. Dr. Luke made it very, very clear to us in this section that it was the Jews themselves, specifically these Jews from Asia, who were stirring up riots. In chapter 21, verse 27, Luke wrote for us that when seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid their hands on him. And as a result, three verses later, we're told, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple and began to beat him. It wasn't Paul who stirred up the riots. It was them. Thirdly, Tertullus says that Paul is a ringleader, quote, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, as if this group is some kind of street gang that's dangerous and needs to be eliminated. Now, this is the only time in Scripture where we see the word Nazarene referring to Christians. Everywhere else, it refers to Jesus himself because he's from Nazareth. But apparently over time, it, be it became a reference to refer to followers of Jesus. But it clearly was not intended here to mean anything positive about Paul, only negative. And we know that because of what Nathaniel asked in John chapter 1. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It had a reputation, and so this was intended to cast shade on Paul, and question his motives, suggesting that he is some gang leader of a bunch of good-for-nothing rebel rousers in Jerusalem and he need to be dealt with. The fourth accusation that he brings is that he accuses Paul of profaning the temple, which we've already seen we know to be a lie. Paul went to great pains to go through the required rituals to purify himself before he entered into the temple, even paying the alms of those who went through the rites of purification with him. And he never brought a Gentile into the temple as they accused him of. This accusation would, would certainly have gotten the governor's attention. Because this governor, the, the, the overwhelming majority of his constituency were Jews. And if someone was profaning the very center of their religious life, which is the temple, well, then that was a significant civil disturbance that needed to be dealt with swiftly. But Paul was doing no such thing. And so Paul's labeled here an annoying pest, a, a political agitator, a gang leader, and a temple profaner. He's being opposed because of his gospel witness. And this theme of enduring opposition because of one's gospel witness is a theme that Dr. Luke has been very consistent with ever since Paul returned to Jerusalem back in chapter 21. 
Gospel opposition was promised to Paul when he got to Jerusalem. It was promised by the prophet Agabus, if you recall. And that prophecy back in chapter 21, oddly enough, took place in the very same city where they are now, in Caesarea. Back then, before Paul had entered back into Jerusalem, as he was planning to do, Agabus said, when you get there, the Lord says that you will be bound hand and foot and you will be turned over to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what happened when Paul entered into Jerusalem. But now, we see it happening in the very same city where that prophecy was made. But likewise, gospel opposition is not just promised to Paul, it's promised to us as well. Jesus himself said to his disciples in John 15, The servant is not greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And Paul reminded young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, the kind of opposition, church, that you and I are likely to face in our lives because of our gospel witness pales in comparison to that which Paul endured. And yet, I can't help but wonder this, and these are questions that I've had to face for myself, and I think we all who call on the name of Christ as our Lord should face as well. And that is, would we face more gospel opposition if we were more bold in our witness for Christ? Do we face so little opposition because we are too hesitant to declare the gospel? And is our hesitancy, our resistance to declare and verbalize the gospel really a veiled defense mechanism against opposition to the gospel? Now, perhaps for some, it's not fear that keeps us from declaring the gospel more faithfully. Maybe it's a lack of love and concern for those who so desperately need it. Or maybe it's a, an overabundance of love for our own comfortable and risk-free lives where we never have to do anything uncomfortable or risky. But friend, to the degree that it is fear that keeps us from being more faithful in our gospel witness, then what is it exactly that we're afraid of? What is the opposition that keeps us from being more bold, more faithful in our gospel witness? Is it a fear of rejection? A fear of ridicule? A fear of being canceled? Is it a fear of not knowing or a fear that we won't know the answers to the questions that are asked of us? Whatever it is that we fear, when we give in to that fear and we don't press on in our gospel witness because of that fear, then we've got a belief problem. We've got a faith problem. We're either not trusting that God is big enough to handle our fear or we're not trusting that the gospel is really true. That our lost friends, neighbors, and co-workers are truly, desperately, and hopelessly lost because of their sin. 
and that faith in Jesus Christ is truly their only hope. You see, I'm convinced that if we truly believe that and firmly held to that, then maybe we'd be a bit more faithful and bold in our gospel witness, no matter what it might be that we're risking for doing so. So church, let's, I think the answer here is to press into the gospel. Press into the gospel, what Jesus did for us, why he had to do that for us, and what the implications of that are for our lost friends and neighbors and co-workers whom we love and care for deeply. Let's press into the gospel so that we might press on in our gospel witness. I shudder to think what would have happened if Paul had given in to his fear of gospel opposition at any point in his ministry. I shudder to think. But he didn't. And the rest of our passage this morning shows us how he pressed on in his gospel witness, both publicly and privately. So let's look first at his public gospel witness in verses 10 through 21. This is the second section of our passage. And so Tertullus finishes his grandstanding. He finishes setting forth his case. And then Felix nods to Paul, indicating that it's his turn to give his defense. And what we have in verses 10 through 21 here is Paul's third defense. And as we look carefully at Paul's speech here, we'll begin to uncover some wisdom about how we too can have a faithful gospel witness in a public setting. So there are seven things here that that I think we can draw out from Paul's public gospel witness and apply to our public gospel witness. First of all, he's honest and straightforward. There's no empty flattery in his speech. He says in the second half of verse 10, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. There's no flowery car salesman speech there. No offense if you sell cars for a living, but there's no empty flattery there. Just truth. I know that you have ruled over these people for many years, and there's no commentary about whether that rule was good or bad. Now, Paul knows that it was bad, but that does him no good to bring that up here, and so he doesn't. But neither does he do what Tertullus does, and that is to try to smooth talk Felix and butter him up with a bunch of empty flattery. Paul just gives truth. Church, in our public witness, we've got to stick to what we know to be true. Flattery is a form of deception and dishonesty, and there's no room for either of those in our gospel witness. Secondly, he's cheerful in his defense. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, I cheerfully make my defense. That word carries the connotation of a good disposition. Paul isn't being vindictive or spiteful here. He's not trying to put Tertullus in his place. Though according to the rhetoric strategies of the day, that's probably what the audience expected him to do. But he doesn't do that. Rather... He's taking his own medicine here. He's following the advice that he would later give to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25, where he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
so that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And then the advice that, that the Apostle Peter gives to the elect exile spread all throughout Asia Minor when he says in 1 Peter 3.15, in your heart the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Church, when the audience of our gospel witness goes low, we can't go there with them. Instead, we must rise above the fray and ensure that both our attitude, our tone, our words, and even our heart reflect kindness, patience, gentleness, and respect. We can disagree without being disagreeable. But if and when we are disagreeable and we lose our temper, we lose our cool, as I believe we saw Paul do just a couple of weeks ago. He was real and flesh and blood just like we are. But when we lose our cool and we lose our temper in those kinds of situations, then we are in fact damaging our witness. So Paul fights against that. Thirdly, he denies the false accusations. We see this in verses 11 through 13. He says, no, I didn't have any dispute with anyone. I didn't stir up any crowds, either in the temple or the synagogues or even in the city. Quite a contrast from what Tertullus said of him, using that hyperbolic exaggeration that he stirred up crowds of all the Jews throughout the entire world. Paul says, no, I didn't, not in the least. He didn't profane the temple as they now accuse him of. And in explaining what he didn't do here in denying these false charges, he himself with truth so that the gospel would continue to be proclaimed through his ministry. Fourthly, he identifies himself with the church and with Jesus. This is important. He identifies himself with the church and he identifies himself with Jesus Christ. And he puts this forth as a confession. He says in verse 14, I confess to you that what? That he was part of, quote, the way. He was part of the way, which the Jews called a sect. And this is a reference to the church. The followers of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father but through him. That he is the only way to God. And so he identifies himself with the church. And he identifies himself with Jesus. And he says that, listen, I worship the God of our fathers. I worship the same God. I worship the ancestral God of the Jews, just as they do. And he confesses that he believes Everything laid down in the Hebrew law and prophets, in the Hebrew scriptures. What's Paul doing here? He's showing the continuity between the Hebrew scriptures and the way. The way of Christ. The way of the Christians. Those who followed Jesus. So he identifies himself with the church and he tells them that he worships the same God as they do. He believes the same Hebrew scriptures that they do. But he was also showing them that the way, referring clearly to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, was in fact the fulfillment of those Hebrew scriptures. That's what he's telling them. He's like, I worship the same God. I just believe that this Jesus who is the way is the fulfillment of their scriptures. 
So he's showing them that there is continuity between the two, but that also there is discontinuity because Jesus is the one who fulfills everything that those things are pointing to. This is the core of what he explains to them. And then fifth, in his public gospel witness, he has a clear conscience. He says this in verse 16, I take great pains to have a clear conscience both before God and before man. And this is kind of a summary statement for all that he said up to this point. In other words, his defense is this. I I came to Jerusalem to worship. And I was in the temple worshiping. I wasn't bothering anybody. He had a clear conscience before God and before man. I wasn't causing any trouble. And I think it's very important for us to see how critical this was to his witness, that he had a clear conscience. There were no secret sins that if found out would destroy his testimony. There was nothing in the closet for Paul that if it came out of the closet would damage his witness. He had a clear conscience. And this reminds us how important it is for us to be above reproach in our public discourse. To be above reproach before a watching world. If we're going to have a public gospel witness then we too need to have a clear conscience, be above reproach and blameless before a watching world. If the things that Tertullus and the Jews from Asia said about Paul were true, then just imagine what damage that would have done to his public witness. Sixth, he does good for his community. He serves and loves on his community. He explains that he He brought an offering, and apparently it was a significant offering to the church in Jerusalem. This was an offering that he had collected during his time with the churches in Macedonia. And if you recall, as we were looking through the missionary journeys, he spent time with the churches in Macedonia. Often he would serve as a tent maker, not taking any kind of salary for himself. Why? So that those churches would be generous in giving to this offering that he needed to bring to those who are suffering in Jerusalem. So he was generous and compassion in serving and seeking to meet the needs of his community, his Jerusalem community there. You know, this is something that that we try to do here as well, serve our community, love on our community. Let me make something very, very clear. When we do that, when we serve our community, when we seek to meet their needs, we seek to love on our community, We're not doing so to try to earn a right to share the gospel with them. Sharing the gospel is not a privilege that we have to earn. It is a command from Jesus that we must obey. But if we consistently turn a blind eye to the very real needs and hurts and suffering of people in our community, then I am concerned that we may be lying about the gospel and lying about our God. We're saying that the gospel changes us from sinners into saints. We're saying that the gospel transforms us from a people whose heart is all about ourselves to a people whose heart begins to reflect the heart of God. And if we're saying that our hearts now reflect the heart of God and yet we consistently turn a blind eye to poverty, to the needs of the widow, the orphan, the abused, the immigrant, or whatever other forms of suffering may present itself around us, 
If we say that the gospel has changed our hearts to reflect the heart of God and we constantly and consistently turn a blind eye to that stuff, then we're lying about the gospel and we're lying about who God is and what his heart is really like. Paul's good works to serve his community, love his community, minister to his community and meet its needs serve to reinforce his gospel message. And then the seventh and final thing that we notice about Paul's public gospel witness here is he centered his defense on the resurrection. He centered his defense on the resurrection. He says in verse 21 that these Jews from Asia, they should be here themselves to say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Verse 21, other than this one thing that I cried while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul always found a way in his public witness. He always found a way to find his way back to the cross and the empty grave. And so should we in our public witness. So what about our public witness? We're probably not going to have the kind of public opportunity that Paul was given here where he stands trial publicly for his faith in Jesus and the gospel. But friend, we all live our lives before a watching world. And how we conduct ourselves before that watching world will have a significant impact on our gospel witness. You see, we can't separate our public lives and our public discourse, how we live and what we say in a public setting, we can't separate that from our public witness for Jesus. We can't treat the checkout clerk at the grocery store rudely, disrespectfully, and dishonestly, and then go to the park for a gospel outreach and expect to have any integrity when we tell people about Jesus. Sooner or later, the former will catch up with and negatively impact the latter. Now, for many of us, the reality is we have a much larger public audience today than the average person could ever have imagined having 20 years ago. The reality is I can pull up my phone after the service and make a comment, and that comment will be seen and read by nearly a 1,000 people. And those are just my friends. If they comment, they share, they post, then that random comment of mine could be viral and read by tens of thousands of people. And please, please note this, and let's, let's all remember this. Everything, everything that we post on social media is going to reflect on Christ and is going to have an impact positively or negatively, on our gospel witness. And maybe we should just remember that before we post, before we comment, before we share. I'm not saying don't use social media. I'm saying be aware that anything that we say and do in a public setting like that, like social media, it reflects on Christ. And it'll have an, a, a, an impact on our gospel witness. So whether it's on social media or any other public discourse setting, that we might be given opportunity for. If we use deception or dishonesty like Turtleus, 
in order to win arguments and defend ourselves, that deception, that dishonesty will eventually be found out. And when it comes to light that we've been deceptive or dishonest in our public discourse, it will do great damage to our gospel witness. If we don't follow the example of Paul here, and instead of being cheerful in our public witness, we're spiteful or mean-spirited and combative. If we don't heed Paul's exhortation to Timothy, and instead we are quarrelsome, we are impatient and harsh, then that reflects very poorly on the Savior whom we say we are representing. If instead of having a clear conscience and being above reproach, if instead we do something that brings reproach on the name of Christ, then we have done great harm to our gospel witness. And if instead of truly reflecting the heart of God and, and, and seeking to serve the needs and love on the needs of those in suffering around us, if instead we consistently turn a blind eye to that suffering and never lift a finger to try to serve those in need, then by our actions, or rather by our inactions, we are undermining the very gospel that we are trying to declare So the reality is, as we look at Paul's gospel witness here, the manner of his public gospel witness is something for us to emulate and aspire to. So church, let us focus on speaking the truth in love. Let us speak the gospel truth honestly and openly. Let us be cheerful and patient and gentle in our defense of the gospel And may we never do anything and may we never say anything that brings reproach on the name of Christ. But Paul was not just given opportunity for public gospel witness. He was also given opportunity for private gospel witness. And that's what we see in verses 22 through 27 as he begins to interact more on a more personal level with the governor, Felix. Now, For you and I, most of our gospel witness is going to be private, not necessarily public in a public setting like that. And so everything that we've learned about Paul's gospel witness in a public setting also bears application and implication for our private gospel witness, and in some cases, to a greater degree. But there's a couple of important things that I want us to draw from Paul's private witness to Felix here. The first has to do with Paul's words, and the second has to do with Felix's heart. First, what did Paul focus on in his private gospel witness to Felix? Look at verses 24 in the first part of verse 25. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. So what did he speak about? He spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Faith, belief in Jesus as the Christ. And he reasoned with them about these three things. Righteousness. What was that conversation about? It was about the fact that they need it, but they don't have it. And the only way for them to have it is through faith in Jesus as the Christ. He reasoned with them about self-control. More than likely, that was a conversation about their sin. Because neither Felix nor Drusilla were noteworthy for their self-control. She was his third wife and he was her second husband. And she was only 20 years old. 
And so this was a conversation he, about their sin. Paul talked to them about their sin and their, their need for righteousness, their need for forgiveness, and that it was only possible through faith in Jesus. And he reasoned with them thirdly about the coming judgment that Felix and Drusilla both would one day stand before a holy God and have to answer for their rebellion against him. The point here is that Paul didn't mince words when it came to sharing the gospel. He told the truth about sin. Plainly. He told the truth about the coming judgment. That it's inescapable. He explained to them their need for righteousness and that their only hope for righteousness was faith in Christ Jesus. And as we share the gospel with our friends, neighbors, and co-workers, we, we should do the same. Church, we ought not to mince words when it comes to gospel truths. You know, as I thought about that phrase, I looked it up. What does it mean to mince words? To mince means to cut up or to grind in order to make something softer and more manageable. And so to mince our words means to cut up or grind down what we say about the gospel in order to make it softer and more palatable to those who are lost. But the problem is when we, when we soften the gospel, we lose the gospel. It loses its shape. It, it becomes something other than good news. Is it true that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Yes, But friend, that is not good news unless that plan for our lives includes a way for us to be saved from the judgment we deserve because of our sin. Is it true that Jesus died for us? Yes, that is true. But friends, that by itself is not good news unless we understand why he had to die for us. Unless we understand that Jesus' death was a substitutionary death. That, that, that serves to atone for and, and cover over those who come to him in repentance and faith. And unless we understand that, then the mere fact that Jesus died for us is not good news. See, like Paul, we need to speak plainly and clearly about sin, its effect on our lives, its effect on our eternity. And that Jesus is the only hope for sinners. Church, let's not mince words when it comes to the gospel. Let's don't try to make the gospel softer and more palatable because then we'll lose it. Let's speak gospel truths plainly and clearly. But then as we conclude this passage, we notice some things about Felix's heart. And I think this begins to reflect to us some things that we might need to remember about the heart of those who are far from God. In these closing verses, we see three things about Felix's heart. First, that he had a divided heart. In verses 22 and following, we're told that Felix doesn't make a decision in this setting. He puts the Jews off. He doesn't decide the case. He doesn't tell them no, although he knows full well at this point that Paul has done nothing worthy of punishment. But he cares too much about what the Jews think. He cares too much about their acceptance to tell them that Paul is innocent. And so he comes up with the story about needing to wait until Lysias comes from Jerusalem to Caesarea. 
which is just a, a, a stall mechanism. He's just putting them off, literally, because Lysias never comes. Lysias doesn't need to come. He already wrote a letter and sent it with Paul as, when he sent him to Caesarea. This is just a stalling mechanism. Felix is sitting on the fence with respect to Paul's case. He doesn't want to make the Jews mad, but on the other hand, he doesn't want to punish an innocent man. And so in verse 23, we're told that he puts Paul into the custody of the centurions. In other words, he's going to put him in prison. And yet, Paul is oddly giving liber given liberties and freedoms that other prisoners are not going to get. Felix is sitting on the fence here. He's trying to have his cake and eat it too. He's in the middle, not wanting to decide one way or the other because his heart is divided. Secondly, we see here that he's got a fearful heart. In verse 25, after Paul speaks with him about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, we're told that Felix was alarmed and he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. The ESV translates that Greek word alarmed. It's, it's the Greek word emphobos, which is where we get our word phobia, which is why most other English translations translate this as frightened or fearful. The King James says he was trembling. Why was Felix so afraid? I believe that it was because on some level he understood that he was a sinner. And if what Paul was saying was true, that meant one day he was going to have to stand before a holy God and give an answer for his sin. Something of what Paul had said to, them, said to him was beginning to get through. And he was afraid of the judgment. Rightly so. As the writer of Hebrews notes in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. On some level, Felix is rightly fearful of judgment. But it's not yet a convicted heart. It's a fearful heart, but it's not yet a convicted heart. To be convicted of sin in your heart is to own that sin. To own it. And to agree with God that it was wrong. And to feel genuine sorrow for it. And accept the fact that you deserve judgment because of it. And to cling to Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later as your only hope for rescue from the judgment you deserve because of that sin. That's what conviction is. And we know that Felix is not there yet. But he is fearful. And we know it's not yet conviction because of a third thing that we can say about his heart based on this passage. It's divided, it's fearful, but thirdly, it's idolatrous. He's worshiping other things. Look at verses 26 and 27, the end of our passage. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. What was it that was most important? Felix what was his highest treasure his greatest delight money and the acceptance of others and out of his greed and his lust for money he kept summoning Paul hoping that Paul would bribe him he gave a generous gift to the church in Jerusalem I want some of that generosity <clears throat> and out of his need for others to accept him 
his lust for power and influence among the Jews so that they would continue to like him as their ruler, we're told that he kept Paul in prison. And he kept him in prison for two years. Felix couldn't give his heart to Jesus because Felix had already given his heart to other things. Money and fame. And church, as we share the gospel with our lost friends, neighbors, and co-workers, they also will have hearts that are divided and fearful and idolatrous. And we have to keep in mind that we're not the ones who change hearts. God is the one who does that. We can't take their divided heart and replace it with a singular affection for Jesus. We can't take their fearful heart and all of a sudden turn it into a heart of conviction. And we can't take their idolatrous heart and give them a heart that worships Christ alone. Only God can do this. And so this is a reminder to us that our gospel sharing, our gospel witness must be combined with deep, heartfelt, passionate prayer and a dependency on the Holy Spirit to work on the hearts of our friends, neighbors, and co-workers to do heart surgery on them. Only God can do this. And friend, if you're here this morning and you haven't come to faith in Jesus Christ, then perhaps you have a divided heart or a fearful heart or an idolatrous heart to one degree or another. Maybe you've got a divided heart. You love God, but you also love people. You love success. You love money. You love things. You love comfort, and you don't want to give any of that up. Maybe you've got a fearful heart. Maybe you recognize that you're a sinner and that you deserve judgment. But either you don't know how to escape that judgment, or you think that you've still got time before it comes. Or maybe like Felix, you've got an idolatrous heart. You're worshiping small gods. The God of money, the God of comfort, the God of leisure, the God of materialism, relationships, whatever. And there's no room in your heart for a God who made all those things. You've so filled your heart with little G gods that there's no room in your heart for a big G God. And friend, if that's you, the only way for you to be forgiven is if God does heart surgery on you. Literally, that he does heart replacement surgery on you. That he takes your heart of stone that is hard to the things of God and he replaces it with a heart of flesh that is soft to the things of God. That is your only hope so that you will turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone to grant you this new heart that loves him more than anything and believes in him and hopes in him above all else. Church, we are going to face opposition because of our gospel witness. And when we do, we must press into the gospel and press into Christ and what he's done for us so that we'll press on in our gospel witness both publicly and privately. And as I was sleeping last night, I, I, the Lord kept waking me up. I don't know, maybe it, was, maybe it was indigestion from the pizza I had. But I think maybe it was the Lord. Because I kept reflecting on this passage and thinking, and we've spent a lot of time in the weeds this morning looking at the word for word, but if we back up to 30,000 feet, what is God doing? 
He's getting the gospel to the nations. And he's getting the gospel to you and I. Just as God would not let anything deter him from his purposes and his plans to use Paul in gospel ministry, neither will he and neither has he in bringing the gospel to you and I. And are we not thankful? Are we not encouraged by the reality to remember what God has done in our lives? Things that we look back and see are circumstantial and coincidental. (laughs) But really it was God moving. It was God orchestrating events to bring us to a place of wrestling with the truths of the gospel. And then he granted us faith and repentance to trust in Christ alone. And I praise God on behalf of every single one of you who know Jesus as Lord, that he didn't let anything stop him from doing that in your life. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, I pray that God will let nothing stop him from bringing you to that very same place. And if you're in that place this morning, I beg of you to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Trust in what he did on the cross as your only hope to be rescued from what you deserve. Be remade into the worshiper that he created you to be. He alone deserves your worship. So give it to him as he gives you a new heart. Let's pray. Father, so thankful for this passage of Scripture that gives us wisdom and guidance about how to serve you, how to live as your ambassador, both in a public setting and a private setting. And Father, we know that as we press into this world that is growing in its hostility to the gospel, we will face opposition as we are obedient in those things. And so we ask, Father, that you would Encourage us with a reminder that as we've learned already, as you have been with Paul, so you are with us. You never leave us or forsake us. And remind us of the truths of the gospel, what you've done, the lengths to which you've gone to reach us. And may we, we be willing to go to great lengths to reach others with this good news. Father, we pray, pray for those among us who don't know you. And we pray that in this very moment, you would grant them faith and repentance to believe on Christ, to trust in his finished work, to be rescued from what they deserve. May you create, recreate for yourself a new worshiper for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.